Look, I think it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all sort of like proposition. It's going to vary from business to business. A sole practitioner is not necessarily going to look the same way that they looked 20 years ago. There's definitely a move toward having smaller client bases and working fewer hours, definitely biased toward remote work. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 170 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. How should we automate our workflows? This is an ongoing question, which of course we won't cover in one episode, but This talk with Chris Hooper of Ecodex in Adelaide will give you a lot more insights. My first question to Chris is how to choose and then possibly adopt a new software either for our practice or for our clients. Here's Chris. I remember seeing the rollout of Zero in Australia and What I saw in the earliest years of Zero's inception was that accounting firms themselves were actually moving their own books over to Zero, um, and I guess mastering it internally before they would even recommend it as a product to their clients. And I've seen those patterns kind of consistently, you know, occur with new technology that actually comes out in the accounting profession. That it first really gets tested on the practice itself before it actually gets rolled out to clients. The common pattern that I see in technology rollout. And again, this is anecdotal, but just from other firms that I'd spoken to, particularly like larger, more established firms, before they would really roll anything out to their client base, they would first test it internally. And I think Zero is very smart in that they offer the practice management software for free to accountants once you have a few clients on Zero. I haven't seen any other software or app offering the accountant kind of a free ride so that the accountant can get used to the software, learn it, and then be in a position to recommend it. Look, I, I have seen some applications actually run with that model. But, you know, that being said, I mean, it's a business model or a go-to-market strategy of, of many, right? So just like, you know, pricing is not like a straightforward one-size-fits-all proposition, nor is kind of the business model to actually, I guess, proliferate that technology. So, Before you approach clients regarding process automation, get your practice automated first. Where should an accountant start? Look, it, it depends on the size of the practice, I think. But I think you have to kind of take a, a whole of firm approach to this. You can't just go, you know, change one process at a time. One thing that I see a lot of firms doing is, you know, build this, cobble together this kind of like patchwork, you know, software stack that doesn't necessarily, I guess, make much sense or stand the test of time. So I think you need to actually think about the whole of the business. Now, accounting is a good one to actually like move to the cloud because it does very much exist, I guess, 
somewhat in isolation to the rest of the business so you can move it over without actually having to change much else. But once you start talking about like CRMs or payment systems or that sort of thing, it suddenly actually starts to impact a lot of users, a lot of customers and and the business as a whole. And it becomes a much more complex process. Accounting is easier to actually implement. And then similarly, you know, reporting, dashboard, analytics, data warehouses, et cetera, et cetera, they're all relatively easy to actually implement as well. It, it definitely is complex. And I think this whole firm approach is, of course, a lot more complex than if you just start changing a little bit here or a little bit there. Honestly, I would start by engaging a professional. Quite simply, this is akin to recommending that, you know, a bakery uh, prepare their own taxes. An accounting firm, you know, implementing their own sort of organizational IT like strategy, I guess, without the assistance of an, a seasoned expert is not necessarily a great idea. There's going to be a lot of wasted time and a lot of trial and error. And the consequences of that, uh, you know, can be quite profound. Yes. So you're talking about cloud integrators. Yes, absolutely. Or someone, uh, at least someone who's done it before. So you might have like a friend from a firm who has actually done this with their practice. And it's like, well, just retain them as a, as a consultant. And, you know, as long as they're getting charged or getting paid their hourly rate, I'm sure they'd be happy to oblige. How do you distinguish between which processes should get automated and which processes should stay manual? Well, I think it's more of a question on which processes can be automated. So before you even undertake this process, it's a very useful idea to do some value chain and process mapping, which is a pretty simple exercise just with, you know, post-it notes on a wall type of thing to actually understand, well, what does each step in the process actually look like? The next question from there is it's like, well, how much value does this actually add to the client, which I guess is the tenant of value stream mapping. And then I think from there, you have a conversation going like, how much does this process or this step in the process actually cost us, be it in time, you know, materials or actual hard cash? And from there, you obviously prioritize automating the most expensive and time-consuming processes, which are often the very recurring, um, you know, predictable actions that occur quite often, you, you focus on, well, what are the most expensive actions for you to perform to what are the least expensive actions to, for you to perform? Because with that, you've actually got to consider the cost of, well, how much does it cost us to actually implement a new solution that would eliminate this step from the workflow? You know, because you've got to do kind of like a discount cash flow model going like, okay, well, it might cost me $10,000 to implement this, this one step, but that's going to save me $5,000 in time and materials per year, I'll break even after two years. Let's do that. Right. So you really need to think like to think about this as an accountant. And this is why I think accountants can actually do this, you know, if they dust off some of their, uh, you know, their university textbooks. To your background, just to put it more into context of what you do and where you come from. And then, of course, my next question will be, how do you run your practice? But can you just quickly give me a little bit of background information about you? Yeah, sure. It'll probably go to answering some of your other questions as well. So I started in public accounting at the age of 19, working for a, a mid-tier suburban firm with four partners and, you know, worked my way through university and through that practice, then sort of graduated from that and went into the corporate sector while I was doing my CA and worked for a, a publicly listed ASX 300 company as a finance analyst. 
And I guess, you know, in those six years, I learned very much what, I guess, slow, manual, cumbersome processes actually look like. I, I remember the uh, ERP system that uh, we were using for accounting in that company, uh, that ASX listed company I was working for. It was one of those things where you'd query the general ledger and then go get coffee or wait for 30 <laughs> minutes before you'd actually get a, a CSV extract of what you were after. Those were the days. Glaringly obvious that, yeah, right, that, you know, there's an opportunity to to improve some things there. And I suppose being a young accountant at the time, I was very much frustrated by some of this, knowing that we had all of this emerging technology where I could get exactly what I wanted when I needed it in an instant. And so I guess after finishing up at that publicly listed company, I then took it upon myself to start my own practice and that was really, that was in 2011, basically, when Zero was kind of on the, the upswing in the very early days. And, you know, we made the decision that, you know, and because it was a startup practice, we, we didn't have any sort of like baggage, I guess, that we were going to run this entire thing from, you know, from the cloud, you know, laptop, internet connection, anywhere in the world type of thing. And I guess just having that as the, you know, the, the policy first and foremost, that we were never going to have servers, let alone printers, that... I guess, set the direction for us in terms of what decisions we made from a technological perspective. Yes. And I think you made the decision to move to zero while you were sleeping. I think yes, it came right. to you in a dream. Yes. So that was like, you know, we were the first couple of months in practice and we were going, okay, cool. You know, what's the landscape look like? Who are the players, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I looked at MYOB, you know, I was very familiar with MYOB, obviously, and I looked at Zero by that stage. And I kind of woke up in the middle of the night and just said, like, you know what, all in on Zero. And that was kind of the, the decision we made. And I guess by going all in on Zero that early on, we set ourselves well apart in the marketplace. It was more like, you know, yes, we decided to go to zero, but before that, it's like we decided to be 100% cloud, right? So that informed decisions about like, okay, cool, what are we using for everything else? And that kind of got us onto like the Google Apps ecosystem. And, uh, you know, at the time we were using Workflow Max, which is kind of now morphed into Zero Practice Manager, but we realized that we needed like a more robust CRM system. And then Practice Ignition kind of came around, which was like maybe two or three years after we'd started. So I think the the good thing about starting when we did start is that, you know, for what we were trying to achieve, the technology didn't necessarily exist, but we like we always kept an eye out for it and we were always ready to actually adopt that as soon as a fit-for-purpose solution came to market. What do you bring to the market now? Are you a cloud integrator or are you a compliance company or have you moved into business advisory? Well, when you look at the split between our billings, it's actually even third. So a third of our business is in compliance. A third of our business is what I call management accounting, which is really like bookkeeping, month-end, uh, like reporting, et cetera, et cetera. And and a third of our business is in business advisory, which is very much sort of sit down, you know, face to face with the with the client dealing with, I guess, the the issue of the week. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're pretty well diverse in, in that respect. In, in terms of the, the cloud integration stuff, I wouldn't say that that's a core part of our business, but it absolutely comes up, you know, as part of the advisory uh, conversation. We've got specialists in the, the practice that actually handle that. 
So it may not necessarily be the partner on the file that actually does it, but he can refer it internally, you know, once he's kind of mapped out the use case. I see. So you have cloud integrators in your firm? Yes. Yes. But I mean, they are accountants first and foremost. It's just that we have accountants that are well-versed in specific app ecosystems, be it retail or hospitality or construction, et cetera, et cetera, that know those products and those industries inside out and can do like an end-to-end deployment if necessary. Do you need to know how to code to be a cloud integrator or does it help to write code? No, I don't think so. I mean, most of this stuff is kind of, you know, click and connect. Yeah, Yeah, click click and connect type of thing. I would say that a working knowledge of SQL is massively advantageous, especially when working with, uh, I guess, larger companies, because the data warehousing, you know, situation is almost unavoidable. Once you're talking about a large company, it's, it's absolutely necessary. And SQL is a database language, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So it's like if you were to pick a a programming language for, you know, if you're an accountant and you were to pick a programming language to learn, SQL is probably the most useful and is probably going to make the most sense, I guess, intuitively for accountants, because really it's just like fancy Excel, you know, that end of work in terms of like trying to get two applications that don't talk to each other, that maybe have open APIs, getting them to actually communicate and interact with one another, I think is probably outside the realm of most accountants and is probably not worth actually learning. And that's where you'd actually start talking to to software engineers. What does this setup in your practice look like? I guess like everything that we can move to the cloud, we have moved to the cloud, obviously. And, you know, we've built our own CRM product like custom to specifically serve the, I guess, the use case that that we have internally. And, you know, that's for, for the most part, all kind of connected and integrated. You built your own CRM? Yes, yes. So Salesforce, Zoho and the lot couldn't deliver what you needed? No, well, we took Salesforce as, I guess, uh, you know, a blank canvas and then spent a couple of million dollars actually like customizing that, you know, so it was fit for purpose for an accounting firm. Because like, you know, to be clear, Salesforce will not, I guess, tick the boxes, you know, if you're just kind of like expecting it to work like a normal SaaS product. Salesforce is very much like a platform. It's not a, it's not a product. So it doesn't integrate well with other applications. Yeah, it requires a lot of custom work to adapt it to the business. But I guess the good thing about that is that you can tailor it exactly to your specifications, which you can't do with other SaaS products. So Zoho and others? Well, look, I think Zoho is a great, like, lightweight, low-cost product that can be implemented quite quickly and cheaply. So, and I mean, all of this needs to be, like, looked at in the context of what are, what are the practices objectives. Here. Yeah, and cost. Yeah, it's not going to be a one size fits all, you know, proposition for every practice. Otherwise, every single accounting firm would have the exact same technology stack, which they just don't. But I do wonder, Chris, whether we are reinventing the wheel again and again. I think to a certain extent, all bookkeepers, all accountants have a very similar need. They need some lead generation through their website or content marketing that would feed into a CRM. Then that CRM needs to somehow feed into a document template regarding engagement letters. Yes, we are all different. We all bring different things to the market. But I think 80, 90 percent of our needs 
are identical. And I think at the moment where we have all this piecemeal, we are all trying to reinvent the wheel again. Yes, absolutely. You're 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 a hundred percent correct with that. Um, and that was my kind of take on it. And I guess that was the decision we made with Salesforce, going like, cool. Well, we're going to build an enterprise grade, you know, solution for the network. Have you ever been approached by other accountants to get your CRM that has been custom built for an accounting firm? Yeah. So I mean, the the partners that end up joining the network, you know, the CRM is a is a big part of that in terms of what we can offer them versus them going out on their own or joining another practice. Um, I mean, that's a contributing factor. In terms of other accounting firms, we've been approached plenty of times, but there's, uh, you know, not much that would convince me to kind of like open up behind the curtain and kind of let them access that simply because we spent several million dollars on it. And it's like, well, if you want it, you can pay us several million dollars for it. But we certainly wouldn't be licensing it to to other firms, for sure. I see. So Equidex is a network of accountants who share the CRM, share your processes, but then basically work on their own clients. Yes, that's right. Oh, okay. <laughs> I clearly haven't done my homework. And I think that will go far because it just won't work that all of us reinvent the wheel again, automating processes. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and this is, you know, where you're right about reinventing the wheel is it's like, well, yeah, that's the reality of what most firms are doing. And it's no different to what we did, but we only wanted to to do it once and get it right. And I guess future-proof it at the same time. Otherwise, you're just you know, constantly on this sort of technology hamster wheel, chopping and changing applications when a, when a new shiny one comes out. So your custom CRM capture lead generation and you put it into the yes. CRM and lead generation, correct me if I'm wrong, I might not even use that term correctly. Lead generation is basically when you get a contact via your website or somebody reaches out to you via a Facebook post, yep. etc. So then yep. those details go into your CRM. Does your yep. CRM also cover the sending of engagement letters and then receiving the electronic signatures and storing those engagement letters in a way that you can find them again two years later? That's actually something we're working on right now in terms of like getting getting the scope of. Um, it's going to be a surprisingly expensive activity to, I guess, hardwire practice ignition-like capabilities actually into our platform. So at the moment, we're using practice ignition and we will do so for the foreseeable future until we can actually build our own sort of version of that. So at the moment, your custom CRM feeds into practice ignition or are they basically two standalone solutions? Yeah, they're two, they're two standalone solutions, which is quite frustrating for me. Yes, yes, I can imagine. And then you would have the accounting software, Zero, that is then separate again, or does your custom CRM feed contact details, etc., into Zero? No, so it's actually practice ignition that feeds that detail into Zero. Um, so we do have connections between all of these, you know, so that we're not like at least replicating uh, the the data as much. So we've got that there, and then. Uh, I guess the other thing is about like workflow and production. So the things that we've got built into our, uh, like our CRM, and you can't even call it a CRM anymore. It's an ERP really, is like uh, sales, leads, pipeline management, and then like workflow management. So job, task, project management, including like the time tracking piece. And then you've got sort of like uh, support ticketing. You've got learning management system. You've got a knowledge management system, like enterprise social and a few other features like 
like that. That that is all in your custom ERP. Yes, that's right. Wow, <laughs> that is impressive. When you work in Zero and you have a query and you want to send the client an email, do you email through your custom ERP so you have a complete track of what was discussed with this client? So I think it's important to kind of understand the, the distinction between how we've kind of encapsulated our respective software stacks. So we look at software in our world, and I think this is useful for listeners as well, are around three different categories. So on the first category, we call it like client stack, which is basically the applications that the client uses to run their business. And the rule of thumb for client stack is it's like, well, if the client has a login to that application, uh, chances are it's a client stack application. Then we've got what we call production stack or partner stack, which is basically the the software that is used for the partner to actually perform or do their job. So in Australia, for us, that's like zero, zero work papers, zero tax slash practice manager, et cetera, et cetera. And then you've got what we call corporate stack, which is basically just Google apps and our CRM system. And, you know, obviously in America, the uh, the client stack and the partner stack are going to be completely different. I think the important thing is that all requisite information actually ends up in the CRM. So you've got like at least a single point of truth. By the way, how did you move into the US come about? So that started with me and this was before we'd even started a codex. I had spoken to a blogger in the United States who had a blog called The Lifestyle Accountant. And he was kind of talking about, you know, I guess the prospect of kind of being at a, I guess, work remotely and all of those sorts of things. And we kind of, you know, shared ideas and talked extensively. And yeah, basically came to the point where it's like, hey, do you want to give this thing a shot? And he said, yes. And I guess I just kind of came to the conclusion where it's like, well, where there's one, there must be several of them. And, you know, from those three years onward, it's kind of been just a matter of like talking to one accountant at a time who's looking at going into practice for themselves and going like, well, is it worth actually doing it through a codex? What percentage of your business in Australia and what percentage of your business is in the US? Ooh, that's going to be a guess. I'd say about 30% in the, the States and, you know, the remainder in Australia. Okay. Oh, well, that's If I a had to guess. Yeah, that's a fair chunk. But Chris, I actually interrupted you. You were talking about the three-tier stack. Yes. Where you have the client stack and anything where the client has a login to is basically yes. covered by the client stack. Then you have the partner stack that yes. helps the partner to do their work, including zero work papers, etc. And then yes. what was the third tier? We call it the corporate stack, which is basically, I guess, anything that has nothing to do with producing client outcomes. So those are like internal slash overhead like systems. Can you give me an example? Um, so all of those things I mentioned before. So learning management system, oh, I see. a learning management system internally at, at an accounting firm. Well, that software isn't used for the production of a client work. It's not used by the client in their business. So it must be corporate stack. Can I ask 
ask you something about Zero that confuses me mm. a lot. What's the sure. difference between Zero HQ, My Zero, Practice Manager? <laughs> look, I think that's a really good question for the Zero people. Perhaps you should get them on the show. Look, I don't touch Zero HQ. Like, I just don't. I think at some point it may come out as like a, a standalone sort of pseudo CRM solution, but I kind of haven't quite seen that yet. You know, Zero Practice Manager, I just call Zero Tax, and that's, you know, tax and bass production software. And I guess my Zero is really just the directory of, of Zero files, which I kind of just grab straight from the search bar. So I spend the most time in, you know, Zero Blue on client side and then Zero Green, which is the tax side. And that's it. Look, I think it's it's not going to be a one size fits all sort of like proposition. So I, I think it's hard to sort of speak in definitive terms. On your website, you talk about reducing the time it takes to work in accounts payable and receivable. What apps do you bring in? Again, it's going to vary from business to business, um, but, you know, just zero in and of itself. And like, you know, that has reduced a lot of time actually spent on the accounts payable and accounts receivable function if you compare it to processes from 10 or 20 years ago. That being said, there's a myriad of, of great applications in, let's look at accounts payable as an example that, you know, Receipt Bank, HubDoc, and all of the others, it's like they're reading these invoices, they're extracting all of the requisite data and pre-filling that into the accounting system whilst actually filing the source document to, you know, to the actual transaction itself. That would have been like a 20-step process 10 years ago, and now it's kind of like a two-step process. And you've just got like a, an AP clerk on the other end who's basically just checking it and, you know, and verifying it, and that's kind of it. So what would have taken like, say, 10 or 20 minutes is now taking like less than a minute to actually perform. And you can see the same thing on the accounts receivable end. You know, if you just use the accounting practice example, it's like, in practice ignition, it's like, well, once you build the proposal to do the engagement letter, which you've got to do anyway, all of the actual billing and cash receipting and all of that is fully automated and self-reconciling, you know, between practice ignition and zero, you can run an, a $10 million accounting firm with not a single person working in accounts receivable these days. That is absolutely not the case for firms that are still using that like manual process. They would need at least one person for a $10 million firm in accounts receivable and debt collection. Can I ask you about two apps that you mentioned a few times? Receipt Bank. I think you were an early adopter of Receipt Bank, weren't you? Yeah, so we adopted Receipt Bank about the same time we adopted Zero. I see. So very early on, around 2012. Yep. Are there alternatives now or is Receipt Bank still quite far ahead of everybody else? Look, um, there are competitors and, you know, in terms of what they're doing, it's all very comparable, you know, in terms of, you know, what they do. I, I do think Receipt Bank is the market leader in terms of size. That being said, you know, Zero's acquisition of HubDoc obviously changes the landscape and, you know, what the future of, I guess, that AP, you know, uh, process and software landscape is going to look like in five years' time. So that one's a bit of an X factor for the time being. So, 
yeah, like I guess watch this space. Zero does have some receipt feature now where you can take a photo of a receipt and upload it, etc. But it doesn't go as far yet as Receipt Bank doesn't it? Yes, yes, of course. So I think it is a good, I guess, lightweight solution for say small, like super small businesses, like sole sole proprietors and that sort of thing, who kind of run their entire business out of zero almost. So you think about your like one person plumbing uh, operation, you know, having an application like Receipt Bank is kind of like a little bit overkill in that respect, in some respects anyway. So I think zero You can do enough on zero to, I guess, get everything done. But when you have like, I guess, multiple people in, involved in the accounts like process, that's where applications like receipt banks really start, uh, you know, start shining. And then practice ignition. Were you an early adopter of practice ignition as well? Yeah, one of the first. I actually knew Guy Pearson back when he, before he'd started practice ignition. So, you know, I thought it was a good value proposition. I think back then we were still, uh, you know, preparing engagement letters, you know, using Microsoft Word templates or something like that. So even before that actually put the payments gateway in, just producing accounting, like, uh, you know, engagement letters super quickly was a godsend for us. Where was it founded? In Sydney. Uh, so Guy Pearson used to run an accounting firm called Interactive Accounting, which kind of started around the same time as my firm had, maybe a couple of years earlier. And it was very much pioneering this, you know, cloud accounting movement back in the day. And Receipt Bank, Receipt Bank comes from England. Yeah, that's right. I don't think London, somewhere else, doesn't it? Well, I mean, the only office I've been to is their London office. So I assume it's kind of headquartered there. It may not have been founded in London, but at least they're there now. Minute Dog was founded in Hawke's Bay in New Zealand, zero in New Zealand. So we... A lot of these companies have come out of New Zealand for sure. A sole practitioner is not necessarily going to look the same way, you know, that they looked 20 years ago. I think there's definitely a move toward having like smaller client bases and, you know, working fewer hours, definitely biased toward, I guess, remote work you know, anywhere in the world type of thing. And I guess that's kind of where the lines of sole practitioner versus, say, freelancer are starting to blur. There must be a fragmentation of the accounting industry into people who work alone, mm -hmm. which you refer to as freelance accountants, or then large firms. Do you see that the the firms that kind of, you know, with one or two or three partners and a couple of staff, do you see those sizes disappearing? Do you see those types of firms disappearing? Yeah, like I'm expecting over the next 20 years that there's going to be a push up and a push down. So I think there will be more people working in the big four. And I think there will be more people that are, you know, freelancers slash sole practitioners. And that, you know, these kind of medium sized firms will make less and less sense in 20 years time. Welcome back. I found Chris' observation very interesting of a push up and a push down within the accounting industry and the growing trend to what Chris calls, and I think it is a very good term for a new trend, the trend to freelance accountants, accountants who work on their own client base, but without an official office and without employees. In the next episode, episode 171, Chris Hooper will share more insights with you 
about counting apps. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.